Good morning, everyone. The scripture reading for today is from Romans chapter 1, verses 26 through chapter 2, verse 11. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their errors. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up, up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Thank you, Aaron. Um, let's open in a word of prayer. Uh, Father, we uh, want to begin by lifting up our brother Ron as he's in the hospital. Lord, I pray that you would be healing him and restoring his strength. Lord, grant his doctors great insight and wisdom, care uh, for his uh, nurses that are attending to him, empathy. And uh, Lord, I know that Ron is aching to come home. So Lord, would you enable that to happen soon? And uh, please restore our brother to, uh, to his family. And we pray for Rachel during this time as there's a lot of um, decisions that she has to make. And uh, there, are, there are just a number of things coming at her. And Father, on top of all this, the pandemic just complicates it so much. So please have mercy. And I pray that you would bless the church to support uh, Ron and Rachel. Uh, thank you that you've blessed them with uh, with a family, Tim and Michelle, who are close. And I pray that you would um, be able to uh, to get them through this 
through your sovereign grace and also through uh, the work of those that you have called to be in their lives. And so have mercy on them, I pray. And uh, Father, we want to pray uh, because it's uh, this pandemic going on, Lord, we want to pray again for our leaders, uh, for those in authority over us. Lord, would you grant them extraordinary wisdom? Uh, Father, I pray that you would give them uh, great care and diligence in um, uh, how to proceed with this uh, this pandemic and, and how to protect the most amount of people, uh, weather this storm so that we might emerge on the other side intact. And so have mercy. And Father, I pray for all of those who are um, financially affected by the shutdown. So many people are out of work. Uh, so many people are, are uh, losing businesses and jobs. And Lord, we pray that uh, you would um, grant a snapback when we are able to start meeting and, and, uh, and gathering again so that uh, these folks might be able to get their jobs back. And uh, Father, uh, just pray that you would continue to spare us uh, from the worst. Although the New York Times uh, had a cover of how many people have died so far. And uh, we just pray that, uh, Lord, that that, would, um, that number would begin to ease and we wouldn't see it grow. Uh, have mercy on us, we pray. Father, this is Memorial Day weekend where we remember our fallen, uh, those soldiers and, um, and uh, sailors, airmen, Marines, uh, Coast Guards, um, those folks who have gone into battle uh, to defend our nation and have fallen. And Lord, we're grateful for people who are willing to do that, willing to put their life on the line to protect us. And Lord, that is just a small reflection of what Jesus did for us and, uh, and, and incomparable in majesty. But Lord, we're grateful for that. So Father, um, we pray for our nation that we would be worthy of those who've fallen and, uh, and would follow righteousness. Uh, Lord, I want to pray uh, for this message. As Ramey said, we don't like to hear about sin. And Lord, that's really what this is about. So Father, would you soften our hearts? Would you cause us to be sensitive to the things that you are um, opposed to? Lord, since you have given us your Holy Spirit, regenerated our hearts um, and, um, and given us uh, new eyes, Lord, I pray that we would see these things as you see them. And uh, Lord, that we would um, accept the words that you have for us this morning, as difficult as they may be. Lord, have mercy on us. Uh, we are sinners, but we do know, Lord, that you are good, and so we trust you. Uh, we ask that you bless now the preaching of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So um, we're in uh, finishing uh, Genesis, or, uh, Romans chapter 1 and beginning into chapter 2. Um, this is kind of an odd place to break where I did, but I think it was justified because uh, I think that doxology at the end of um, of verse, oops, I'm on the wrong page here. Um, at the end of verse uh, 27, or I mean uh, 20, 25, the end of verse 25, that doxology was kind of a, a, a signal that there's a break here. And we're fortunate because what Paul does is what he did earlier in the chapter, he kind of picks up and repeats things again, and he picks it up again and unfolds it. So um, I think it works. I think we're, we're doing okay by breaking it where we did. Um, so just a reminder of what, what's going on in the book of Romans. Romans is Paul's gospel. It is his presentation to the church in Rome about what his mission is about. And my theory is that he is, since he's planning on going into Spain, he can't have 
Antioch as his home church anymore because it's too far away, so maybe he can root himself in, in uh, Rome. Uh, though he hasn't met them, he's writing to them to prepare it, uh, see if they can be on board. So he's presenting his gospel to them. And uh, what I said was the summation for the book of Romans, the statement that kind of wraps up what his gospel is, is the phrase salvation to everyone who believes. Salvation, so we're in the portion of the book now where he's establishing the need for salvation. Uh, what are we saved from? Um, it's salvation. He's also making a strong point that it's for everyone. Um, it's not just salvation for the Jews. It's salvation for the Gentiles. It's salvation for everyone. And then the other important part of his gospel is how may we achieve that salvation? It's salvation for everyone who believes. We're saved by faith alone. And so that's the good news. Um, we're not to the good news yet. What Paul, I think, is working on doing at this point is reminding us of the desperate need that we have for salvation. He's getting us to the point where we can see that we are desperate without him, without Christ. And then he'll lead us into uh, what the good news is. So really the first like three, three chapters or so, maybe three and a half chapters, are establishing the universality of sin and the need for salvation for everybody. So if you remember last week, Paul had been building this, this progress to explain why it is that people need to be saved. And so his, his way of thinking through this was he starts with the idea that everybody knows about God. Um, he, he said that God's invisible attributes are clearly perceived through that which has been created. So you can't say, well, I don't know anything about God. How is it fair? Because he didn't you know, give the Gentiles uh, the, the special revelation, the Bible. How is it fair that he would then judge them? Well, what Paul is establishing here is he says, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and, and, and his divine attributes, they're clearly seen. So everybody has seen them. Now, what's important here is to also, I, I want to bring it up again, is when Paul says that, that they're clearly seen, that they're visible, that they're available to everyone, um, they're not sufficient for salvation. They're just removing the excuse, well, I didn't know. Uh, so his invisible, invisible attributes are clearly seen, they're clearly perceived in what has been made, but they did not honor or glorify God or thank him. And so, so what he's saying is the Gentiles could see clearly God's invisible attributes, but they didn't honor him, which another word for that is, the, the root word there is glory. So they didn't glorify God, they didn't honor him, nor did they give thanks. They, were, they didn't essentially worship. Um, they didn't thank God. They didn't have this, this, um, this recognition of his honor and his glory. And so when you are faced with, with reality that looks like this, and you refuse to accept it, then what happens? Well, the next step is their, their futile hearts, or their thinking becomes futile. It, they can't ration. Once we've taken this portion out and we say that can't be, then the, the uh, reasoning becomes faulty, and their hearts are darkened. Um, and so what we said with the hearts are darkened is that's disordered passions. Um, I'm, we're built to honor God, to glorify God. So the first, the primary thing that we should see as beautiful is God. And when we say, no, he's not, then what Paul says is we put other things in his place, images of man and crawling things and birds and all kinds of stuff. We'll put other things in that place. And so our passions, our loves, our desires are now disordered. And so that, that leads into idol worship. And then finally, where we ended last week is God gave them over in their hearts, their, their hearts of lust, to dishonoring their bodies. So it goes from the head, 
I refuse to accept the reality that I see. It then affects the hearts. My desires are upside down. What I want and what I should want are, are backwards. And then it results in a physical manifestation. They're, they dishonor their bodies. They're, they use their bodies incorrectly. So that's kind of the path that he's taking. Now, where he picks up here in, uh, in verse 26, as he picks it up again, he's, he repeats actually the exact same phrase in Greek. In verse 24, he says, therefore, God gave them up. And in verse 26, he says, therefore, this reason God gave him up. It's actually the same five words in Greek. Uh, the therefore and for this reason is the same word. It's just translated a little bit different for, for a variety so you can see it. But so he's, he's clearing us. He's clearing us back to that. He's taking us back to verse 24. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. So what he's saying is that since the Gentiles refused to accept these things, and their passions were, were distorted and, and turned upside down. God let them go. It's, a, it's a more of a passive phrase. It's not like God is manipulating and moving them in that direction. And so that's, that's the tie-in. That's how the thought process fits together. And so uh, beginning in uh, verse 26 and 27, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So this is, um, this is the, the illustration that Paul picked to say, this is what it looks like when you've rejected God, when you turn away, and, and this is now what happens. Um, and so really, this is the big question here. The, 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 um, the issue that we have to address is, this is talking about homosexuality. There's just no other way to read it. There's been some uh, modern tried attempts to reinterpret it, but it just doesn't work. The, uh, the things that are contrary to nature, that phrase, if you look in Greek philosophy, Greek ethical philosophy from um, you know, earlier than the first century, the Greeks used that to mean homosexuality. And so that's, that's what it's talking about. Um, so the question then is, is homosexuality a sin? And this isn't um, opinion. This isn't something, you know, bigotry or, or hatred. This is what the Bible says, and therefore we're bound to say, yes, homosexuality is a sin. Um, that's what Paul is telling us here. This is, this is what the issue is. So is homosexual desire, is having that inclination, that draw towards homosexuality, is that a sin? Yes, it, it, it is, because what the scriptures say is that they were consumed with passion. That is that desire, that inclination. That's the drawing of yourself in that direction. Um, that, that idea of natural is used a number of times. Women gave up the natural relations. Um, men gave, likewise gave up natural relations and consumed with uh, things that are contrary to nature. Um, I think when, it's, when he's using the word natural there, he's pointing back to that idea that we talked about at the beginning. God's invisible attributes are clearly seen as what is made, in what is made. So the idea of a natural right or a natural wrong, it's not that God arbitrarily kind of threw these things together to, uh, to make a world. It's he has put these things together in a very specific way in order to show his glory and to show his invisible attributes. And so when it's contrary to nature, it is contrary to the way that God has, has structured it. Um, it. It points back to that idea of creation. And so it kind of ties that back together is 
not accepting God as he has portrayed himself in nature, um, uh, not giving him thanks, uh, hearts that are darkened, uh, futile thinking, um, disordered passions, and then it results in uh, how we act in, um, in physical ways. Um, now, our culture, um, Western culture and American culture has pretty much decided that homosexuality is an acceptable thing. It's, it's um, as a matter of fact, in some places to be celebrated and, and honored. And at that point, it really separated the church from the culture even more. Um, before that, there was a general understanding within in Western culture that homosexuality was bad. Um, it was done poorly. It was, uh, it was treated probably with lack of respect to human beings, um, but at least there was the idea that this is not an acceptable practice. It, it would be considered a sin. Um, our culture has gone the other direction. And so for us living in this age, this, this time, we Christians can feel like this is, this is unnatural. This is out of the ordinary. Things have changed so much. Wasn't it much better back then? And, and how great were things? Actually, where this puts us is pretty much where Paul was in his day, because homosexuality was widely practiced within Roman and Greek culture. It was well known, and it was hotly debated. Like I said, the moral philosophers had called it unnatural. Um, and certain parts of society would say that it was wrong, and certain par parts of society would say that it was right. So um, we're kind of back with Paul on this, where we're, parts of our society are saying it's great, some are indifferent, some are saying it's wrong, some are saying it's unforgivable, um, it's horrible, that kind of stuff. So you get the spectrum of, of opinions on it. So what I thought was, well, why did Paul bring up homosexuality as the, like this thing? Is this the ultimate? Is this like the end of the chain of events, and when you get to this point, you're, you know, it's, it's all over. Um, I'm not sure that's his point, looking at the literature, because we're not done. We don't end here and say, okay, that, that's it. Um, he's going to keep going with sins. So why would he pick homosexuality as, as this issue to highlight and spend so, much word, so many words on it? Um, I think it serves his purpose in a number of ways. First of all, uh, if you looked at the sexual practices in pagan worship in the day, uh, there was um, prostitution, there was homosexuality, there was all kinds of things. Their worship was a very, a very lustful kind of worship sometimes because uh, the thought was, well, I'll go to the temple and I'll engage in sexual relations with this cult prostitute. And that will excite the God enough. They will, they will just get so excited by what I'm doing that they'll bless my fields or they'll make my wife pregnant or something like that. That was the thought is, is we'll do this drama and get the, the gods excited. So sexual, uh, sexual practices were part of pagan worship. And isn't that what Paul has been talking about is since they rejected God for who he was, they worshiped other things. And so now they're inventing other forms of worship. So homosexuality fits into that picture. Um, I think it also furthers Paul's point because the issue is the desires of the heart. And the sins that we're going to look at next are not quite as visible that it's a problem of desires. They, they are, but, and we'll pick through it, but when it comes to homosexuality, it is an issue of the heart. It is an issue of desire and of passion and, and that kind of stuff. So what is it that you love? What is it you long for? And then it shows, I think his third reason for picking homosexuality is it, it demonstrates that desires manifest themselves in physical action. 
that, that they do show themselves in some way. So what our hearts desire um, will play out in, in how we behave. And I think what's going on here is I think he picked homosexuality because it's just the most visible and graphic way to, to picture it. And it hits all of those points. Um, so um, as we press through and we're going to pick up some more sins, let me pause here for a second and, and ask a couple of questions. Um, can someone be a homosexual and be a Christian? And when I say that, that that's a loaded question because there's a lot going on in it. Um, it depends. Um, can someone have homosexual desires and be a Christian, be born again, um, be regenerate, and still have those desires and wrestle with them? Yes. And the reason I say that is because someone could be a born-again Christian and have desires for lying and, and wrestle with them and still be born-again Christian. They could. Um, could someone in a committed homosexual relationship be a born-again Christian? Uh, I think it's possible. Uh, I don't want to categorize too broadly because it depends. Case-by-case uh, -case basis, you'd have to really spend some time working through it. Um, it it's possible for uh, people who are born-again Christians to live in uh, live together and have uh, illicit sexual relations outside of marriage that way. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean they're not born again. Uh, but the problem is, this is not what God desires. This is not what we would call natural, is to have those kind of things. The natural thing is God wants relationship, a, a committed marriage. And so he created male and female, Adam and Eve, put them together in the garden. And he said, this is marriage. This is a commitment. And, and that's the, the, the goal, that's the desire. Um, so one of the problems with our, the way our culture has handled uh, homosexuality, and especially in the church too, is I think we've treated it as like the ultimate unpardonable, unpardonable sin. And uh, you just can't you know, get past it, it's, it's the end of the road. And the reality is, is it's a sin that we, all, that we would wrestle with, just like we would wrestle with any of the other ones that Paul's about to list. So he brings it up to illustrate his point about the trajectory of where sin is. Now, the other thing is what Paul is talking about, they gave up and they didn't do this and they did this and then they wind up at this point. Um, I think it bears saying that there wasn't some golden age when the pagans were either neutral or actually good and then they gave those up and, and marched through. I don't think Paul is talking about this, this trajectory as chronological as this has happened in history at these times. I think what he's doing is he's speaking of it as a way to explain why humanity is in the mess it's in, um, is because we won't recognize God, then we have these other problems. And, and so it, it's kind of that going in that direction. So um, what Paul is talking about there is he's talking about irreligion. Um, remember the, the context of this in, is they refuse to worship God. They refuse to honor him and glorify him. Therefore, it looks like this. Um, and like I said, homosexual practice was part of pagan worship. So it really does stand out as this is a problem of worship, first and foremost, that manifests itself in life. But here's the thing. The irreligion doesn't stop there. We don't end at this point and say, okay, we're done talking about sin and irreligion. He keeps going. And so listen to where he takes us next. And since they did not sit, see fit to acknowledge God, gave, God gave them up to a debased mind. There's that God gave them up thing. He, he's repeated that three times now. Uh, God gave them up to uh, impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And now we see God gave them up um, 
uh, to a debased mind, a mind that is not functioning as it should. This really is that outline that he's laid out for us. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, evil, disobedient parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So who's they? Is they those who were given up to homosexuality? I think that way too narrows the field. There's a small portion of population that are homosexual. There was a small portion that were homosexual back then. To say that they is only this, it really misses the point. Um, when he says they, he's hearkening back to that idea of the Gentiles, the, the, the group of people who were not Jews and were not given the laws against these things. And so here's where he goes with this, is he says, they were given up to a debased mind. Well, what does a, deba a debased mind look like? It fills them with all manner of unrighteousness, evil and covetousness and malice. And so he, he gives us this long list of sins that he's going to lay out for us. Um, commentators really wrestle with these sins because they don't seem to be organized in any special way. Some of them are, are practically synonyms. Uh, they're just repeated. So the idea here is Paul is using this in a rhetorical sense in a way to present and get the heart of the matter across and, and a way that they can hear. As a matter of fact, the last four uh, have an, what's called an assonance. They, they sound similar. They all begin with A sound, A this, A this, A this, A this. Um, and so I think he's doing it in, in a, a setting like he's preaching so that people would hear and recognize. So if there's, there's no real order or, or grouping of it, that's okay. It gets the point across. So let's take a look at some of these. He, he starts with envy, murder, strife, deceit, and mal maliciousness. That's almost an overview for what he's going to say. So um, is it only the Gentiles who were filled with envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness? No, it's everybody. We all are guilty of that. We've all done those kind of things. He says they're gossips. Um, when he says gossips, it's an interesting Greek word. It's almost whisperers. Um, what a gossip is, is a gossip is somebody who tells something that may be true, probably is true, but it has no business being announced to everybody. That's a gossip. And, and gossip is, can be really a strong desire in a lot of people because it makes you feel like you're the insider. I've got the scoop on this and let me tell you about it. Well, you really have no business telling that. that that's really not your place to tell that bit of, of information, even if it's true. And so that comes back to an issue of the heart. I want to be in the in crowd. I want to look cool. I want to be the one that everybody thinks is, you know, knows what's going on. Therefore, did you know that? And so you have to be careful with that. Gossip can sneak up on you. A slanderer is pretty much the same thing, except for a slanderer is you're saying something or writing something that's not true, that, that is defamatory of a person. It may be true, but not exactly pitched correctly. It can be that kind of a thing. So it's very close to uh, gossips. Uh, haters of God. It's a hard word to, to translate because um, it just is hate and God. And so is it haters of God, God, those who don't love God, or is it God hates those, uh, those people, God, the hated of God? Um, hard to say. Insolent. Um, insolence is when you look at authority and go, I don't have to. You just buck authority. 
Um, if I can be honest for a second, I sometimes have a problem with that. Um, I, there are some times when I'm told to do something, and I don't have to do that. And, uh, and I can be insolent. And it really is it's a matter of foolishness. It's a, basically, it's pride. It's a disordered passion again. It's, it's passions out of order. Haughty, that, that's pride. That is being proudful, uh, thinking more of yourself than you should. Uh, boastful, it's thinking more about yourself you should, and then announcing it to everybody. Let me tell you all about me and how wonderful I am. Inventors of evil. Um, these people come up with new ways to do to be bad. And, and have you ever seen somebody who's like that? They're, they just are going to do something bad because that's what they want to do. And so they come up with a new way to, to do that. And then disobedient to parents. Disobedient to parents ranks up with murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness and homosexuality and dis disobedient to parents. Now, I, I know that this is one that all of us have been guilty of. There has been some point somewhere in our life where we didn't obey our parents. We can say that without qualification. So why is that in the list? Why is that here? Well, we just finished Exodus, and that's the fourth commandment. Honor thy father and mother for the, um, um, honor thy father and mother disobedient to parents. It fits right in there. Foolish? Have you ever thought that it's a sin to be foolish? That it is a manifestation of the heart? I think if you go back to Proverbs and you look at Proverbs, the, the, what the, the author of Proverbs is saying is the foolish is the one who says, I don't need wisdom. Um, the wise is the one who says, I need wisdom. That's the first little bit of wisdom that you need to have is that you know you need it. And so when, when we talk about foolish, foolishness is saying, I just, I don't need that. Um, or refusing to accept that you need it. Foolishness is, I'm, I'm fine the way I am. Faithless, heartless, ruthless. Um, these are all of these sins that just kind of pile up and pack up. And, and if we are honest with ourselves for a moment, if we stop back, step back and look at this, we can go, you know what, we're guilty of those, at least some of those on occasion. Um, we have to recognize what Paul wants us to see here is these are that bad. Um, this is probably not the exhaustive list, but what he wants us to see is this is that bad. This is, this is how bad we can be. This is the problem that we all have is we're going to do these. We're going to have moments where those things flare up in us. And so what do we do with that? Well, where he goes is he says they know God's righteous decree that those who practice these things deserve to die. Now, we got to be careful with the deserve to die, um, because what that mean, doesn't mean is capital punishment, that if someone is a disobedient to parents, we go kill them, um, that if someone is foolish, we go kill them. If we killed all the fools in the world, we'd be alone really quick. What, what that means is it's not hearkening to the old covenant where um, disobedient to parents was punishable by death, homosexuality was punishable by death. It's not hearkening to that. This is much more big. This is much more uh, covering much more people than just the Jews. This is covering everybody. I think where this is hearkening back to is actually Genesis two sixteen and Genesis three three, where Paul, where God tells Adam, if you eat from the fruit of that tree in the day you do it, you will surely die. And then when he does it, he said, "Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? The one that you will surely die." Um, that's what he's talking about, is it's not our place to kill people for these things. It is, this will bring death because it is out of line with who God is. It is opposed to who God is. And so 
this list of, of things is not pointing to just the homosexuals that he talked about. It is pointing to all of us. It is a problem we all share. And, and we have a problem here. Now, the other thing is, it says they know God's righteous decree. And that's one of the reasons I said this is not pointing to the old covenant law. Um, what uh, Doug Moo, he's a commentator, wrote probably the, one of the best contemporary commentaries on Romans says, is he said the lack of reference here to the law is significant. They know right, God's righteous decrees. He doesn't point to the law. Paul speaks of what all people, whether blessed with special, special revelation or not, can know of God's just judgment. So if we can stop and be honest with ourselves and really back up and say, when I am gossiping, do I know that that does not please God? Um, when I am being faithless, does, do I know that that does not please God? Or do I say, well, you know, if somebody found out, I'd look bad. There's a significant difference there between the two. The motivation, the heart issue should be, if our passions are, are close to rightly ordered, we should be most concerned that we have offended God by this. They know God's righteous decrees. And then the last thing he says, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That is really condemning to all of us because you might say, well, I would never disobey my parents, but when she does it, it cracks me up. Or I would never gossip, but boy, I love listening to what he's got to say. Or I would never be insolent, but boy, when they do it, it is so cool. That's what he means here by they give approval to those who practice them. Is I won't do that, but boy, I'm going to support the people who do. That makes me feel better. It's still a disordered passion. It's just you're a little bit more sophisticated in saying, well, I won't do that, but look what, they, look what those folks are doing. So you can't, you can't let somebody else do the unrighteousness for you, delight in it, and say, well, I've, complete, I've complied with God's command. I'm doing what God wants me to do. So where that leaves us at the end of chapter one is there is this category, this group of unrighteousness. And it is not limited. It is not a small group. It is manifested in a number of different ways. It comes from refusing to acknowledge God for who he is. It then affects our desires, our passions, get upside down because we want something that will fit what we've already defined. And then it eventually winds up in expressing itself in, in what we do. So that's kind of the, pat, the trajectory he's, he's bringing us in. That's the unrighteousness that he's been talking about. Um, that's what unrighteousness looks like. But wait, it gets worse. We're not done yet. There's, there's much more that can be bad. And, and there's a form of apparent righteousness that is just as bad as that. And that's where Paul's going to take us. Do you see what he's doing? He's, he's showing us all our sinfulness and our need for salvation. So I'm not like those people. I don't do those things. And so where does Paul go? He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourselves because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, that you judge those who practice such things and yet do themselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? So that's, he, he then says, okay, there's unrighteousness. But when you look at it, there's a form of righteousness that is just as bad. Because what you're doing is you're looking on them, you're judging them, you're saying, God may not judge them, but I will. 
I, I will bring that on them. I would never do those things. I am, I'm so much better. And it can lead to a distorted view of actually the human nature because we could say, well, I don't have those desires. Therefore, they must be resistible because they don't affect me. Therefore, you know, why can't everybody do it? Or I don't do those things. Therefore, they must be avoidable. If I'm not doing them, um, I, I don't have to do those things. And so th this can really give us an upside down view of those who do struggle with those things, those who have problems with those things. And it can result in this inflated self-worth, this inflated idea of who I am. I have arrived. I am good enough. I am, I am the one who can do it. And I think the, the, the most pointed illustration in the Bible that Jesus gives us is the Pharisee and the tax collector who go in to pray. The, the, the tax collector goes in. He won't even go to the front. He's standing in the back. He's beating his chest saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He, he's agreeing with God that I have done this. I am so bad. Please have mercy on me. And then a Pharisee, the, the, the religious conservatives of the day, the orthodox, the ones who were, who were most in touch with the Bible, they had more of the scriptures memorized than we will. Um, this Pharisee walks in and he sits down in the front and he begins to pray and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. And so Jesus tells that story and he's saying this man has misjudged himself and misjudged the tax collector. So in the end, Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went home justified rather than the other one, the Pharisee. So where Paul is taking us is right where, where Jesus takes us is, are you going to judge those folks? Are you going to look at them and go, oh, they're so terrible. Isn't that horrible what they did? That, that, that person is so disobedient to their parents. I am never like that. I would never do that kind of thing. What we have to do, what, we're, what Paul's gospel is calling us to, is to be honest with ourselves. Do you practice these things? And the way he ended chapter one is there is no loophole. If you don't practice them, but you delight in somebody else doing it, then, then do you practice those things? And who are you to judge then? So, well, which things? Which things do they practice? Do they really practice these things? So you judge, you practice them yourself. Well, which things? Um, he's not pointing back to the homosexuality. That's the big one just because the way our culture is today. He's practicing, pointing to that whole list. Pick one. Which one do you have a problem with? Which thing on that list? Or let's go beyond the list. Um, adultery. I would never commit adultery. Well, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 says, if you lust, you have committed adultery. Uh, I would never murder anybody. Really? Jesus says, if you've hated somebody, you've committed murder. So are you going to then turn and judge other people and say, oh, but... I'm so much better than them. Or, oh, those people, they, if, if they just tried harder, they could do it. Or, you know, if they just got their act together, if they were just more, what you're saying is if they were just more like me, I, that would be fine. Here's the problem. God knows your heart even when you don't. So where Paul goes with that then is he says, or do you presume on the richness or the riches of his for kindness and forbearance and patience? Since God has not zapped you, since God has not brought judgment upon you, since God has not consigned you to hell this moment, do you presume on the riches of his kindness, his forbearance, and his patience? 
the, the thing is, when we recognize those sins in our lives, when we, when we look back and we say, I, I see those things manifest themselves in various ways at various times, sometimes when I'm not even expecting it, um, are we just presuming, well, God will be cool with me. He's, it's good. You know, I, I can continue to coddle that one. I can continue to feed that one. Um, because God, you know, he'll just be patient with me. No, are you presuming on that? The, the point is, it, it's not there. God is not extending patience and kindness and, and forbearance to you so that you can continue to dwell in it. What he says next is he says, do you presume on that? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And there is finally the good news in this. There is where we finally get a, a lightening up of that, that burden of sin that Paul has placed on us. God has appointed a day by which he will judge mankind. In the meantime, he's expressing kindness. The sun came up this morning. You were able to draw oxygen into your lungs. You have food. Despite the pandemic, there's still toilet paper available out there. We have um, medical things that can deal with these. God is extending his kindness to us in the midst of this sinfulness, this pervasive sinfulness. Why? Because God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. It's intended to take us from where we are, coddling and delighting in these sins, to repenting of them and, and coming to him. That may mean that God delivers us completely from a sin. It may mean that in God's wisdom and his kindness and mercy, he leaves a sin that is still rooted in us and still is troubling us and keeps raising its head again in order to keep us humble. There's, that could be a thorn in your flesh. It could be that he's given us this to know his kindness and his mercy as we wrestle against that issue of gossip. You know, you bite the tip off of your tongue because you're about to do it. And in that wrestling to say, Lord, thank you that you've delivered me from this. Please give me strength to not do this thing and, and to lean on him and trust him more. It's his kindness. It's his forbearance. It's his patience. And it's meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your own heart and independent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So here's the thing is, if you're in the category of irreligion, unrighteousness, doing all of those things, indulging in them, delighting in them, just inventors of evil, that, that category, then you're storing up wrath for the day when, when God will reveal his, his righteous judgment. And if you're judging them while practicing them and, and looking at people and saying, well, I'm, you know, this is the religious group saying, I am, I am so much better than that because I know all the rules and I've got all the, the, the trips and tips to not commit those sins. Well, what Paul tells us here is, well, you too are storing up wrath for that day as you deceive yourself. That's the tax collector and the Pharisee. That's the picture of it. That's what it looks like. So then what's the way out of this? What are we supposed to do? Well, what we're supposed to do is take this time between God's, our, our sinning and God's wrath for our sin and repent. And repentance is not saying, oh, I feel sorry. Repentance is saying, I am going to turn in another direction. I'm going to not do that. So one of the tricks we have to learn is when the sin shows up, what triggers it in me? What is it that draws it out of me? What makes me weak in that space where I want to do that? What is it that makes me want to gossip? Or I feel like, you know, I better put my hand over my mouth because I'm about to gossip. Analyze that. What are the things that trigger that? And then avoid them. 
Um, it may be just if somebody starts talking, you just go, you know, I'm, I can't listen to this and, and leave. Um, it might be um, making sure that you're not by yourself, that you have somebody else there who might elbow you in a little bit. You know, you might be heading down that way. Whatever it is, there's numerous ways to do it. Use that time between now and God's judgment to repent. And, and the good news is he's given us a spirit who's leading us in that direction and, and taking us in that way. So don't presume on God's kindness and his forbearance, but use them and engage them and say, Lord, I don't want to be irreligious and just dive into them. I don't want to be religious and judge other people for it. I want to not walk in them and I want to learn to, to head another direction. So that's the point of God's, um, God's patience. God's mercy is, is, while he's enduring with us, it's not to say sin is no big deal. It is to lead us to repentance. So then the last part, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. That is that change of heart. That's that re reoriented passions. Not saying that we don't have the, the competing desires or the sinfulness of the flesh calling us in different directions, but we have patience and we seek to do well. And we seek that for glory, honor, and immortality that I may attain to the resurrection is what Paul says at one point. To those he will give eternal life. And this is how you know that you're not in the irreligious group because you're not bathing in it and you're not in the religious group where you're judging other people for it and ignoring yourself is you are seeking to do what God wants you to do. We can see that we have not only natural revelation telling us, we have the scripture saying, this is God's right and, and correct way. And so you will seek after those and what he will give you is eternal life. Notice it doesn't say that he, you have earned eternal life. He says he will give eternal life. In other words, if you're seeking well, uh, doing well and honor, then God is saying, then it doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to nail it exactly right. Otherwise, give it up after the first one. It's tremendously great news because it's what it's saying is if you're working that way, if you're struggling, if you're calling on the Lord, if you're saying, Lord, I don't want to offend you, then he will give you eternal life, right? Salvation to everyone who believes, not salvation to those who know the right rules and keep them, but salvation to everyone who believes. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. This is the doctrine of hell. This is the doctrine of God's wrath. And, and it's come up a couple of times. God's wrath is revealed from heaven. We saw earlier in the chapter. This is what it's talking about. Is It's not that while God is forbearing that these sins pile up, and then when we get to the end, he just goes, oh, never mind. The, what Paul has already told us is we are storing up wrath for the day. And so for those who will not seek to head in the right direction, those who will not repent, those who will not say, Lord, I want to follow you in a stumbling, bumbling, um, not perfect way, but I want to come after you. Would you be with me? Would you help me? He will give those eternal life. The other ones, they get wrath and fury. And it's supposed to be scary. It's supposed to be ugly. It is not something we just go, oh, yeah, I want to go to hell because that's uh, you know, going to be a better party. There is no party in hell. There is no party under God's wrath. It is terrifying. And so what he's doing is he's, he's reminding us at this point that this is the motivating factor for Paul is why does he spread his gospel is because heaven is a real thing and hell is a real thing. 
There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Now, why the Jew first and also the Greek will there be tribulation and distress? We'll come to that in, in, a, in a due course. We'll get to that where he says, look, what's the benefit of being a Jew? Great in every way. They got the, the oracles of God. So they also got the prophets. And so when you look through like Kings and Chronicles, what you see is prophets coming and announcing over and over and over again the coming wrath if they don't change. So it was to the Greek first, or to the Jew first, but now it's to the Greeks. Paul is going out and preaching to everybody. So there will be wrath and tribulation and distress to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. That must have been earth-shattering for his, his uh, Jewish hearers to hear. Surely it won't affect us. We're in the covenant. We're his covenant people. Surely it's for those bad folks outside the covenant, those folks who are, who are doing all those horrible things. Nope, it comes to God's community first, and then to the Greeks. But glory, honor, uh, glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So what that is, is it's showing once again that salvation is possible for everyone who believes. Everyone, everyone, Jew and Gentile, uh, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, male and female, gossipers, uh, people who are disobedient to parents, um, uh, homosexuals, whatever, whichever category we've already covered in sin, it is available. It is made available to us, honor and glory and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and to the Greek. And here's Paul's major point. This is the theme of his ministry. And this is something that he really wants the, the uh, Romans to agree with him on. For God shows no partiality. God doesn't show any partiality. So for the religious who are convinced that they're good enough and they're, they're doing all the right things, God's storing up a day of wrath for them. For the irreligious who just don't even care and they're just indulging the flesh and whatever feels good, they're saving up, um, God is saving up wrath for them because God does not distinguish. God is not showing partiality. We're, we're all under this condemnation together. We're all in the same boat it's got a giant hole in it that we keep picking at, making bigger, and it's sinking. That's the bad news. The good news is God is going to rescue people out of that boat, not showing partiality, not, not splitting it up and picking who he will and who he won't. The gospel is God's kindness leads to repentance. He's, he's giving us, he's drawing us to repentance. So again, the, the theme of the book, salvation do you feel now that you need salvation? Do you think that you need to be saved? Have you done any of those things? Have you felt any of those things? Have you been inclined in that way? Have you ever disobeyed your parents? Let's just take it down to the simplest one. Have you ever disobeyed your parents? Then you need salvation. Salvation is available now. It is available to who? To, not to me. Surely not to me. I've been too bad. I've done too many terrible things. Um, you, you just don't know how awful I've been, the, the things I've said, the things I've done to people. You, you just can't imagine. No, this salvation is offered to everyone. You especially need it if you feel that way about yourself. Salvation is offered to everyone. And, and what we'll come to in, in a matter of a few chapters is, then how do I attain that salvation? How do I get that? It's available to everyone who believes. Will you trust the Lord? 
and, and put aside your religion, put aside your, I, I follow all the rules, therefore I must be good enough. Would you put aside, I, I flout all the rules, I disobey all the rules, therefore I'm too bad to be saved. Will you put those things aside and say, Lord, I agree with you. Eternal life is your gift. You will give it to me. And Lord, would you incline me to start walking with you? Father, would you show me the order that these passions of mine should be in? Holy Spirit, would you come and restructure them for me? Put them where they need to be because I'm lost without them. I can't figure it out myself. Why? Because my heart is darkened and my thinking is futile. This is what we're talking about when we say that there is no part of the human nature that has not been corrupted by sin. There's no part of us, there's no island of righteousness within us that we can tap and say, okay, I can figure it out for myself. All the way, top to bottom, inside out, we need God to do this for us. This is the salvation he's offering. Do you want it? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would all confess our sins to you. And Lord, where we have buried them and hidden them, where we have dragged the sins of others over top of them so we can't see them, but we can judge others, when we buried them under that pile of dirty clothes, Lord, would you shine the light on them and remind us that these are our sins. Lord, where we have approved those who do them, where we haven't done them ourselves, but would delight in those who do them, Lord, would you shine your light on that and show us that. And Lord, when we have become so used to a sin, so used to slandering people, when we've become so used to gossip, when we've become so used to be disobedient to parents, Lord, would you remind us and show us, remove that callous and show us that is something that offends you. And Lord, I pray for all of us that you would lead us to walk with you, that we would acknowledge and agree that you will give eternal life to those who will follow after you. Incline our hearts, break our hearts, move our hearts in that direction, order our passions, order our desires, and lead us to salvation. Lord, that's our desire. That's what we're seeking after. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name who made it possible. Amen. Uh, once again, uh, you know, we haven't met because we're in a pandemic, uh, but that last song really echoed the end of the sermon, I thought, you know, the patience of God and that kind of stuff. So thank you, Holy Spirit. Um, so uh, some of you have asked about Ron. Ron is, uh, he's, he's got pneumonia and his uh, blood oxygen is kind of low. Uh, so the hospital is, is working on him. They tested him for COVID-19 just as a normal uh, precautionary me measure. And, uh, and hopefully he is gaining strength and, and, and getting better. Um, Rachel could really use your encouragement. If you want to just drop her a line, give her a holler, um, let her know that you're thinking and praying about her and Ron. So continue to pray for our brother. Um, I know he is aching to come home. He, he was not happy being in the hospital last time. He is not going to be happy going in there again. So, uh, so be, 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 please be praying that God would have mercy. Um, this past week, President Trump said that all houses of worship are essential. And the reason he did that was uh, to open a way for churches to open again, uh, if, that's, if that's what they want to do. So um, I just wanted to take a brief moment to kind of explain what our attitude toward closing the church and opening the church is, uh, and then let, let you know where we're, we're heading with this. Um, when it comes to certain things, the 
government, whatever government it is, has no authority over the church. And so when it comes to worship, the government has no authority to tell the church they can and cannot worship. Um, so think of Soviet Russia or communist China. In, in Soviet Russia, it was illegal to worship and the church met in hidden places. It would have been unrighteous for the church not to meet because the Soviet government said that we're atheists and we don't do that. In communist China, even today, they're tearing down church facilities. Um, it would be unrighteous for the church not to meet simply because the government doesn't like it. So what we said is when the government told us um, don't have large public gatherings, we felt it was a wise and a right thing to do because we're concerned about caring for our brothers and sisters in Christ. But our chief and our primary allegiance is to God. And so we said, we'll find another way and we're doing this online thing. So when the government steps up and says, you may meet again, um, we don't necessarily snap in line and go, okay, well then we'll do it. Um, we're doing it because we want to honor God and love the fellowship. And we will proceed based on what's wise there. So it might be if Governor Newsom next week says churches are allowed to meet, we may agree with him and say, yes, we'll do it. Um, or we may say, no, we're not going to meet yet. It's, we don't feel it's safe. Um, it might be that the, uh, the government comes out and says churches can't meet for another two years, and we will go, well, we will meet when it's appropriate and right. So um, I'm not trying to be insolent because I just preached against it. What I'm trying to say is the, the authority structure for the church is not the local government. We will pay uh, respect to them. We will listen to what they say in certain areas when they're within their rights. Um, but our allegiance is first and foremost to our king. And so we will do that. So to that end, the elders are going to have not really a formal meeting, but a get together uh, this week. And we'll discuss um, when should we meet again? What are the indicators that say that would show us that it is wise to meet again, that it would be good to meet again? And so we're, we're watching that. We're praying through it. Please be praying for us as we try to make that decision when we go back into the facility. Uh, we need to figure out when we go back into the facility, how we do it when we're there. Do we take some chairs out, make some space? Um, what do we do with the facility? How do we sanitize it? How do we clean it? Those kind of things. So those are questions that are coming up. And, and people have asked if we're going to meet again. And the answer at this point is we don't know, but we will when it's, when it's wise. Uh, we can't say safe because it's never safe. I mean, you know, we live in earthquake territory. The building could fall on our head. Um, but we want to do it when it's wise, when it makes the most amount of sense, when it would uh, put the fewest people at risk. And, you know, with Ron being as sick as he is right now, I think, man, that would be just horrible if we met and he got COVID because we rushed to get together um, because he's so ill. So that's our thought on that. We're, the elders will get together and we'll brainstorm and we'll come up with some ideas this week and let you know. Um, so also I wanted to bring up a couple of things this morning. Uh, we had the privilege of having Dan teach Sunday school again. Um, it was good to hear him. It was nice to, to sit under his teaching for a bit. Um, if you care to join us for Sunday, virtual Sunday school, uh, 9.45, this station, this channel, and um, we will uh, be uh, learning about salvation. So Dan is beginning to teach us through salvation. So this morning, a lot of what he said, I'm just grinning to myself going, yeah, I'm going to say that again. So um, it, it, I love, it's like the, the Bible has a theme and a purpose, and it's written by one giant author or something. So that's uh, Sunday school will be happening then. Uh, Tuesday night women's group, they're meeting online. And so if you're interested in that, there's information in the e-news. 
Um, the men's group is meeting on Wednesdays, and uh, those are always, those have been some really interesting conversations, really challenging and good things that we're working through. Um, and that's Wednesdays at 7, so if you care to join us. And then on Thursday nights, uh, we're working through the New City Catechism. And what a catechism is, is it's a set of questions and answers. Uh, it's a way of teaching. Um, and so the New City Catechism has 52 questions and answers, and it just goes some, through some really important doctrines, asks a question, gives us an answer and some scripture to look at. And so what we're doing is not anything huge and elaborate, not a lot of preparation, read the question and the answer, and let's discuss it. What does it mean? What does it feel like? The first one was, um, what is your only hope in this life? And, and the answer was that I am not my own. So what is hope? What does it mean to have hope? And, and what does it mean that you are not your own? Those kind of questions. That's all we're discussing. So if you're interested in that, um, those are some opportunities for you. I uh, wanted to remind you that um, if you have prayer requests, you can email them to the church office. There's an address in the uh, e-news. Please email them in. I know that it's not super challenging right now because we're not getting out a whole bunch, but uh, if you have something you'd like to have prayer for, please do that. That's that God honors prayer. He will hear. And uh, we want to remind you again that if you want to continue to support the ministry, you can still tithe. Uh, there's a link on the webpage, tccav.org. Um, and there's a link in the e-news if you want to do that. Uh, if you send a check, put on the front of the envelope when you mail the check in, attention Lauren, so we get it to the right people. And, uh, and so that, my friends, is all I've got. Oh, one quick one. One quick one. Um, I was supposed to go to India to teach hermeneutics and homiletics to some pastors the moment that the thing kicked off. And so within about two weeks, I had to redo all of that. And so... Uh, that trip got canceled. I was supposed to be there at the beginning of April. Um, I was going with Daniel Holmquist, our previous pastor and, and a missionary that we support. He just got a hold of me uh, this week, and the plan is to go in October, assuming everything's open. And instead of just teaching at one site, because it was two days at one site, so that was like, I'm going to travel halfway around the world to teach for two days. Um, now it's going to be two days at two sites. So I'll do two days at one site, go to the next one and repeat the lesson. So that was kind of exciting because it's a little bit more of an involved trip. And I'm looking forward to going and coming back and telling you great stories. Um, every time this church has gone on a mission trip, we come back with great stories. So um, maybe this is something that the Lord will use to spark us in a new direction and, and give us a, a bigger vision again that, uh, that we used to have. So um, with that, um, Remy, should I just do the benediction? Go for it. Okay, so our benediction comes from Romans. Um, Romans chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So after a message like we heard today, where all our toes got stepped on, it's good to remind ourselves we have hope in believing. Amen. Go in peace, my friends. Tim.